wow, what a week. <laughs> you know, I was thinking last week, wow, what a week. And here we are seven days later, and uh, it's just been a wild ride lately, hasn't it? You know, these are very difficult days, and never has it been more important that Jesus be the subject of our lives. As I shared last week, I planned this series about six, seven months ago for this time, having no idea what we would be going through as a community and as a nation, as a world. And uh, these are indeed uncertain times. These are times where our routines have been disrupted, where we're not sure how long this is going to last and what the full impact of it is going to be. And yet Jesus can still be the subject of our lives today and every day, in the good times, in the difficult times, from the mountaintops and from the valleys. So we want to encourage you with that. And as we begin this morning, I want to encourage you to actually think of a time in your life when you went through a season of suffering from your past. Maybe you think you're in a season of suffering right now, and maybe you absolutely are. Maybe you were before any of this started, and this is only added to that. And if that's the case, I certainly am sorry that that is the case for you. But I want you to think about a season of suffering from your past, and you might be thinking, wow, Pastor Mark, that's so uplifting. (laughs) But bear with me for just a moment, all right? Hang in there. I can think of a couple that come to mind when I think about a season of suffering. The first actually came uh, when our firstborn son had to have an emergency surgery at six weeks old. And Heather and I were brand new parents, and we were ill-equipped for the experience of handing our firstborn child over to a surgeon we had never met for that surgeon to perform a life-saving surgery on him. And I call that a V-shaped season of suffering because it went down steeply and it came back up steeply and rather quickly. We were immediately surrounded by family and friends. Some lifelong relationships were forged during that little moment in our lives. And fortunately, the surgery went very, very well and everything was fine within a week or so of that. And then my mind went to what you might call more of a U-shaped season of suffering, where we went down steeply, and it took a long time to get back to normal. That was a season uh, following the birth of our second child. We had two different miscarriages. One was twins fairly early on in a pregnancy. One was a son uh, about halfway through the pregnancy. Each of those was incredibly difficult in their own way and uh, created a lot of anxiety, uh, a lot of concern. Um, even when we became pregnant with, with our third son, with Owen, we were, we were terrified that entire pregnancy until we got to about the eighth, week, eighth month, I should say. Um, and we started to kind of come out of that season and experience the joy um, and were fortunate to have two more children. But um, there's two reasons that I want you to think about a season of suffering from your past. And the first is to encourage you that you made it through that. You made it through that. And the people of God have a, a, an asset. They have a, a companion in the person of the Holy Spirit that walks through us through our most difficult times. And so I want to encourage you first and foremost. But the second reason that I wanted you to think about a season of suffering from your past is that we're going to be talking about suffering today. And I wanted you to have uh, a, a moment in your own life that was fresh in your mind. We're in the middle of a a series titled Jesus is the Subject. We kicked this off last week. And uh, the idea behind this series is that we would look at each of the four Gospels leading into Easter 
and then we would have a message for Easter that sort of brings it all um, to a close or brings it all into focus uh, perfectly because it is so easy to get distracted and it is so easy to lose focus and it is so easy to focus on the wrong things that we have to make Jesus the subject of our lives. And this has never been more important. There are so many things right now clamoring for our attention and so many things that can draw our focus away from Jesus. And so it's critically important that we make Jesus the subject of our lives today and every day. And as we go through this series, we'll look at each of the four Gospels and we'll consider a main theme or a main idea that that Gospel presents and consider the audience and the author of the Gospel and how that speaks to us today as we do that. Um, and, and they'll also be oriented around a key element of Jesus' nature. So last week, we looked at the idea that Jesus is the Messiah. And in Matthew's gospel, he presents Jesus as the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah that the people of, of God, the Israelites, had been praying for and had been hearing about from the prophets for centuries. And so Matthew, a Jew, writing to a Jewish audience, focused on this element of Jesus' nature. And that word Messiah means anointed one. So our bottom line or our big idea last week was that Jesus is the anointed one, that he was the anointed Messiah, and that you are the appointed one, that Jesus came and did very, very well what he was sent to do. And as he was ascending back into heaven, he appointed us, his followers, to be his hands and feet on the world. So he's the anointed one, and you are the appointed one. The last words of Matthew's gospel are known as the Great Commission, where Jesus says to his disciples to go and make disciples, and that he'll be with us as we do. He's the anointed one, you're the appointed one. Today we're looking at the Gospel of Mark, so you can just flip right on over to the next Gospel, and we're going to be considering the idea that Jesus is a suffering servant. So if you have a Bible with you, I would encourage you to open that up to Mark chapter 10. We're going to have all the verses on the screen behind me today, um, but if you have a Bible with you, I would really encourage you to open that up and to follow along with us there. The Gospel of Mark was written by a man named John Mark. And if you've read Acts recently, you know that John Mark was a friend and a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. And it's believed that Mark was in Rome uh, in the early, uh, late 50s, early 60s AD when Peter was there as well. And so some scholars refer to the Gospel of Mark as the Gospel of Peter because it's widely thought that Peter relayed the events of Jesus' life to his friend, John Mark, who wrote them down and presented them as a gospel, a tale of Jesus' life, a telling of Jesus' life, of the good news of Jesus. And uh, it's the earliest written gospel. It's also the shortest. And uh, most of it appears in the other three Gospels. In fact, scholars have indicated all but 31 verses of the Gospel of Mark appear in at least one of the other Gospels. It's uh, fast-paced. It has uh, quick uh, scenes, and it moves from uh, scene to scene with a lot of action and a lot of details. So, a lot of times I'll recommend Mark to new believers. I'll I'll say, uh, you want to understand the gist of Jesus' life, read the Gospel of Mark, 
and uh, it's, it's shorter, it's easier to uh, access um, it, and it carries with it a, a central theme, and that's what we're going to be looking at today. And one of the central themes that Mark presents in his gospel is the confusion that his followers had around what the Messiah would do. All right, so last week we looked at this declaration that Peter had in Matthew 16, which also appears in Mark chapter 8, that Jesus is the Messiah. But there were differing opinions on what the Messiah would do. Most people at the time, in fact, maybe all but one, thought that Jesus the Messiah would be a conquering king. You see, the people of Israel and those living in the land of Israel, the people of God, had been under Roman occupation for well over 100 years at the time that Jesus starts uh, walking around uh, in, in going through the towns, healing people, and proclaiming the kingdom of God. And so they thought that when the Messiah comes, he will deliver them from this Roman oppression, that he will be a conquering king, that he will introduce a new kingdom, and that it will drive out the other kingdoms that were around them and maybe even take over the whole world. Jesus, on the other hand, presents an image of the Messiah being a suffering Servant, and this is this is also very rooted in the Old Testament prophecies, particularly Isaiah thirty-one. I'm sorry, Isaiah fifty-three, which we will be looking at in just a moment. And so, this confusion seemed to be centered upon uh, what what does the Messiah do, and what will the Messiah bring to his followers, to those closest to him? Will will the Messiah's conquering king? nature bring about fame and power and wealth to those closest to him or will the messiah be one who serves others and who gives his life in 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 suffering and will that be what's required of his followers and so that's where we pick up the action here in mark, in mark chapter 10 verses 35 through 45 this is the third of three passages that are very similar in nature where jesus talks about his identity as the Messiah, and what that means for him. And he predicts his death in each of those. There's one in Mark chapter 8, there's another in Mark chapter 9, and then we'll look at, uh, we'll pick up the narrative after Jesus has just predicted his death in verses 32 through 34. So I'm going to be reading from the New International Version, verses 35 through 41. I'll pause a few times as we go through this um, and talk about things so that we all stay on the same page. But this is what is written just after Jesus predicted his death and, and that he would suffer at the hands of sinful men. This is what we read. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now, now keep in mind, Jesus had literally just predicted his own death. And James and John come and say, hey, uh, thanks for sharing. Uh, we've got something we want you to do for us. So Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you before I suffer and die for the sins of the world? What do you want me to do for you? They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left hand in glory. You can't make this stuff up, can you? In fact, I bet at this moment, Jesus wanted to practice some social distancing with John and Mark. You know, I mean, you just, you hope and pray that you wouldn't be this tone deaf, that you wouldn't be this unaware. And yet we have examples in scripture of the apostles just getting this so wrong. And in a way, it's oddly encouraging to me because I know there have been so many times that I have gotten it so wrong that I have just 
plain missed it. So Jesus is ever patient, ever long-suffering, and he says, what do you want me to do for you? They replied, let us sit one at your right and the other at your left in glory. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? And there's no context for this question. They don't know what he's talking about. But they answer, oh, we can. Absolutely. Verse 39. And Jesus says, you know, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at the right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Now, when the other ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Of course they're hacked. And I bet there's a part of them that's saying, why didn't we think of that? Why didn't we ask Jesus to be at his right or his left? Why didn't we think of that first and make that request? And I think these first few verses in this passage illustrate that we're really good at hearing things and seeing things through our own limited perspective. We're really good at hearing what we want to hear, aren't we? And we're really good at viewing the world with a what's-in-it-for-me mindset. How is this going to impact me? How can I make the most of this? How can this be good for me? And if our prayers reflect that manner, uh, then we'll find ourselves more and more like James and John. And uh, I just love that Jesus chooses to step into that teachable moment, not only with James and John, but with the other 10 who are now upset, and to bring them all back on the same page and to help them understand what's really important. So verses 42 through 45 really reveal the true pathway and the true motivation uh, to greatness. Here Jesus says in verse 42, he calls them together and he says to them, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. I love that little phrase right there. And I could get off on a tangent with that phrase and preach a whole message on that phrase. But the bottom line of that phrase means that we are to be different. That the people of God should stand out. And the world really is watching right now. The world really is looking to the church and to Christians and saying, are you really different or are you going to freak out like the rest of us? Are you really going to be the hands and feet of Christ? Do you really mean that? Are you really going to follow him or are you going to blend in? And so the importance of that phrase, not so with you, applies beyond the immediate context here of Jesus addressing his disciples about leadership and about authority. It applies to us today that we should stand out. We should look and sound different to the world around us. And he continues, Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So in this passage, Jesus reveals the true pathway for and the true motivation of greatness. It is not power and prominence like the disciples thought. Instead, it's suffering and service. And by nature, we tend to gravitate much more to the power and the prominence and to avoid the suffering and the service. But Jesus says, lest there be any doubt, even I, the Messiah, even I, 
the one who was anointed and sent to carry out this critically important task, even I came to serve others and to give my life in exchange for those who are held hostage by sin and death. And that's us. That's not just the disciples. That's not just the people who were living at that time. That's each and every one of us. And that's each and every one out there in this world that will die apart from God and spend eternity apart from God if they do not hear the good news. And so the message here is that when we surrender our life and our will to his care and his concern and his control, we should do so with the understanding that it will involve service and suffering because those are the way of Jesus. And there are gospels out there and there are presentations of the gospel out there that tell you anything but that. They tell you that it'll be a life of ease. They tell you that it'll be a life of financial gain and all of these other things. And that goes against what Jesus himself said and the model that he gave. And so we should absolutely surrender our life and our will to his care and control. And we should do so with the understanding that it will involve service of others and it will involve suffering. And so we must not run from suffering. We must not try to avoid it, as I said last week. And we don't buy into the lie that we're somehow exempt from it. Instead, we surrender to it. And in time, maybe even embrace it because we come to see the impact that it has not only on our own lives and on our own dependence on God, but on the impact that it has on others through us. And so our bottom line today is that surrendering your suffering turns your mess into a message. Surrendering your suffering to God allows Him to transform the mess that you are in into a message of hope and encouragement and peace to other people. Surrendering your suffering to God allows Him to turn your mess into a message of hope, of peace, of God's presence in your darkest hour to encourage those in their own darkest hour. And so I want you to think back to that season of suffering. Did you surrender during that? Have you surrendered to that? Were you able to embrace that suffering as as a, a means by which God might turn that mess that you were in, whether you got in it on your own or whether you were thrust into it by circumstances, into a message that would encourage and, and provide hope and healing to others. How has God turned that mess into a message? When I think about my two seasons of suffering that I shared earlier, that surgery, it's been amazing how many times I've had an opportunity as a pastor to walk into a V-shaped season of suffering for somebody else and be able to identify with the pain and the anxiety and the fear that they have because I've been through it myself and I've been transformed by it myself and can cast a vision for the future that awaits that person. In fact, this was never seen more clearly for me than when I got to West Virginia and I was the pastor there. I had an associate pastor and he had his firstborn child, uh, was delivered, had a number of respiratory issues, actually spent eight days in the NICU at, at the local hospital. And he commented later that that when I walked into the room and started to share with him that I had been down this path before, that we had, we had felt that powerlessness, we had felt that uncertainty, we'd felt that anxiety, we'd asked the why questions. 
He said it brought a peace and a comfort to him that was unique because we had been through what he was going through. That nobody else in his life had had the same experience at that time. And so I found myself uniquely equipped. And God was able, because we had surrendered that season of suffering to him, he was able to turn that mess that we had gone through into a message of hope in somebody else's life. The same can be said for the miscarriages. If you have experienced a miscarriage, you know that that is a very unique season of grief. You're mourning the loss of something that you never quite had. And we were able and have been able in the time since to walk through that season of suffering with other people, uniquely qualified to help them with it. And I have done memorial services for miscarried children when people weren't even sure if they should ask for that or if that was appropriate, and to be able to step into that and to know what prayers needed to be prayed and know what words needed to be said to encourage and to support and to strengthen and to point people back to God and to help them grapple with the questions of God's goodness and his sovereignty in the midst of something so difficult to endure. And so I want you to take a moment today at some point and think through and pray through your seasons of suffering and the different ways that God has turned those messes into messages of hope and encouragement. Because as I said before, the world is watching. The world is watching us in this mess. And if we will surrender and we will say, God, we don't always understand, but we know that you are good and we know that you are with us and we want you to, to take this mess and turn it into a message of your hope in our lives, in our centers of influence, in, in the places where we can involve or be engaged with people and encourage people. And there's a, there's a happy ending uh, to this that we can await and so I want you to look at Isaiah 53, verse 11. You see, Isaiah 53 is probably the Old Testament prophecy that presents Jesus as that suffering servant more than any other. And we don't have time to focus verse by verse through it, but I want you to read that at some point today. Read that chapter of Isaiah 53, especially if you can do it with a good study Bible that will help you understand the words that are being said and the connections that are being made. But in verse 11... God, speaking through the prophet Isaiah, says these words. He says, after the suffering of his soul, after the suffering of the Messiah, after the suffering of the suffering servant, after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of light and be satisfied. I love that image. That Jesus, after he suffered, after he went through the pain of death, through the pain of the Father turning his face away, through the pain of dying and going down into the grave, and then was resurrected, and now sees eternity before him, and sees all the people who have come to faith in Christ, all the people who have gone from death to life in his name. He is satisfied. Not only did he surrender and submit to the suffering, but he's now satisfied. Because God turned that mess into the greatest message the world has ever heard. And he will be satisfied. And by knowledge of him, my righteous servant will justify many. And he will bear their iniquities. That is good news today. That is encouraging news today. That points to a Christ, to a Messiah who surrendered to a life of service and suffering and by his wounds. We are healed. And so whatever season of suffering you're walking through now or may lie ahead of you at some point in the future, you can surrender that suffering to God. He can turn that mess 
into a message. And by your own wounds, people can hear the good news of a God who loves them, who's crazy about them, who has literally died for them, that they might be healed. Our bottom line today, surrendering your suffering turns your mess into a message. I want to encourage you with that and leave you with that. This isn't fun right now. I understand that. I experienced that myself. And it doesn't look like it's going to get a lot funner anytime soon. But we can each choose to surrender our life and our will to God's care and concern each and every day. And we can live for him. And he can turn this mess into a message of hope to those around us. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word. God, we are so thankful for your example, for your willingness to submit and to surrender to a life of service and suffering and to set that example for us. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and that you would empower us to live for you, to surrender our own mess, that you might turn it into a message. That there would be those who are encouraged, those who are strengthened, those who find hope because of the way we walk through the next few days and weeks and months. Make it so, Lord. Make it so. Amen.